How many of you have heard Bill speak before? Oh my goodness. I, I don't think I actually need to do an introduction. But just to say how much we value and we appreciate a father in the faith, faith an apostolic figure, a man who's pioneered so much, whose walk, whose life is filled with integrity. He lives what he preaches and he teaches. And it's an absolute privilege for us as South Africans to welcome Bill Johnson. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I, I think there's strong evidence there's a lot of fanatics in South Africa. <laughs> I, I remember growing up, I heard a definition of fanatic that I like the best. It's somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. And I, I thought that was a good one. So, oh, so good to be here. So good to be back in South Africa. And I'm glad I'm not on a screen. It wasn't near as fun. I couldn't eat the food. I couldn't enjoy your faces or anything. But uh, it was, it was a, a privilege to do that. But it's even better to be here. So glad to be here with some uh, dear friends and both Sean Foyt and Sean Bowles and a whole team over here from uh, Bethel Music that's uh, working tonight too. Just a real treat for me. Um, I was, uh, in thinking about uh, taking a couple of minutes just to talk to you, and then I want to introduce uh, our guest tonight. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible that I return to often for personal nourishment and insight is Israel leaving Egypt, finally getting into the Promised Land. It's not a picture, of course, of us going to heaven, it's because uh, Moses didn't make it. Um, it it's, it's a picture of entering into a reality in God uh, that we call the kingdom of God. The reality of the kingdom that is now. It's future, but it's also now. One of the phrases that I grew up liking probably 40, 35 years ago was the phrase kingdom now, but not yet. It always helped me to kind of settle things that... that uh, that it is now. But unfortunately, many people have found a way to let the not yet be the hiding place for their unbelief. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to create a theology that explains away lack. What we want to do is learn to contend before the Lord and to carry out what Jesus modeled for us. What he accomplished, what he did in his lifetime in three and a half years is extraordinary. I understand eternally God but he gave us an example that could and must be followed. He gave us an example of what it would be like to be fully dependent upon the Father through the Holy Spirit. He illustrated that in such a way that we could actually follow it. As I have pondered and looked over this uh, great story of Israel coming into the promised land, I, I'm fascinated by goodness, a million things in that story. But two of the things that stand out for me uh, for tonight is the way that God would manifest himself. When it was nighttime, he would manifest himself as a pillar of fire. In the daytime, when it was hot, he would manifest himself as a cloud. He tended to manifest himself opposite to his surroundings. 
So how would he manifest himself to a group of people in economically hard times? He is, he is not the God created by our culture. He is other than. And we don't get the benefits of his kingdom when we live according to the rules of this one. Now, we are law-abiding citizens. Don't read into that. But there are ways of faith. There are ways of following his principle, his heartbeat, his presence that gives us access to an ongoing dimension of the absolute superiority of his world. And the cool thing is, it's what everybody is hungry for. The Bible calls Jesus the desire of the nations. Everybody wants a king like Jesus. Everybody wishes there was a king like Jesus. And when we come in word only, not as many are drawn in. But when we come with compassion and display the mercy, the love, the care of God for the most broken of those in our society, when we come with power to see things reversed that technically are irreversible, and then we see Jesus show up, suddenly things begin to happen that none of us can take credit for. See, when we don't function in the miraculous, we operate in a gift mix that we can actually take credit for whatever we do. But when we step outside of what is humanly possible and simply through radical obedience give him a place to do what only he can do, then he shows up in a way where he alone is glorified. That, I believe, is what the Lord is going to be releasing over us in these next couple of days. And I'm just uh, happy as can be to uh, be able to share a couple of days with you. Sean Bowles is one of the dear friends of our house, Bethel and Redding. I'm trying to get him to move there, but I don't know. He's got this thing going in Southern California. I don't understand it. I, I, I love he and his wife so much. In fact, I was privileged to do their wedding uh, a number of years ago. What a, what a treat that was. We were outside. We got a pasture of, of sheep bang in the background of this wedding. It just seemed prophetic. I don't know. I, I, it, you, you don't have to be extremely prophetic to read into that somehow. So it was, it was good for me. But uh, Sean has deposited so much in my life and in our life as a church family, our movement. Um, it's the prophetic, obviously. It's, for me, it's the unusual gift that he operates in on one hand, and the other side of the same coin is his impact on bringing transformation to broken people's lives and ultimately transformation in culture. We are here not just to get a few people to sign up to be church members. We're here to do what Jesus said to do, and that's disciple nations. To do that, there has to be an adequate display of who Jesus is. And Sean is one of those individuals that is uh, so unusually gifted to be able to put on display, both in the preaching of the word, the teaching, the equipping, and the demonstration of God's power, demonstration of God's love. I was telling our folks here some some months ago, when I had the privilege to introduce Sean to our, our group, I, uh, I'm in a lot of conferences every year. I, I, last time, I don't even count anymore, but last time I counted, I think it was 35 or so a year, and I hardly ever, ever, ever miss a session. So I'm in a whole bunch of teachings all year long, besides what we have going on at home. 
And I'm just saying all that not for pity, not for mercy, not for envy, just to say I hear a lot of wonderful people speak. And I don't research people's messages online except for Sean. I find something that he's ministering on, and I'll put it on my computer, and I'll sit there and get provoked once again on how we can bring the presence of God, the power, the prophetic of God into culture and to bring true transformation in any given setting. I'm so thankful that I get to share the pulpit with so many friends, and one is with Sean Bowles. I want you to express your love and appreciation to Sean as he comes. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Go ahead and sit down. I, I always say that words of affirmation are not my love language, except for when Bill or my wife do them. And then I want to cry or get really touched. And uh, I never, it's weird being prophetic, and that's not one of my primary love languages, is to hear words. I love action. I love acts of service. I love quality time. And words of affirmation are what people need the most right now in our culture. They need to hear what God thinks. And so it's exciting when you, you get a moment to hear what someone else thinks of you. It's a beautiful thing. Well, hello. I feel like we're throwing a party. This is so good. It feels so good in here. We, it took us like 36 hours to get here. I'm not sure about you. You might have driven down the street or been, come from Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, woo! But uh, how many of you have ever heard me speak or heard me do anything? Or am I an add-on to the conference for you? Oh, good. So there's a lot of you that we've how many of you listen to Exploring the Prophetic Podcast? Anybody? Woo, woo, woo. A lot of you. That's amazing. So thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. If you're not a part of it, it's free every week. It's a free download. You're going to really enjoy it. Anybody seen the TBN show? Anybody? Oh, come on. Thanks. That's awesome. So we, we just launched with TBN, and uh, it's just come over to Africa as well, and you can also get it on their online downloadable app. We just love to resource the body of Christ. I had this, this dream and this passion that we're all going to hear God in powerful ways in whatever sector of life we're at and see transformation. And so that's one of my primary passions. I'm the least likely person to do it, so I'm perfect. I uh, grew up around a lot of very eccentrically gifted people of all types, whether it's in the arts, entertainment, or business, or, create, you know, profits. And I always felt the, like the most normal person in the room. <laughs> And I thought, how am I ever going to have an impact in the world? Because I wasn't born under a star, and I don't have a birthmark on my butt. And I don't have, you know, when I took the spiritual gifts test in the 1980s, you know, we only believed you had one or two. And mine was like helps. It wasn't prophet or healer or something profound. And I hated those gift tests back then because you only get one, right? Your church is like, that's yours now. That's who you are. And I'm like, no. So... So I come to you just as one of you. I come as your brother. I could come as a father if I'm old enough, but don't call me daddy if you're like 50. I'm, I'm too young. That's not going to happen. But uh, I just so enjoy coming to groups like this because I can feel the spiritual hunger. And I, I want to take away over the next two days that I get to speak any excuse you have for thinking you don't hear from God. My, my favorite thing to do in ministry is not to demonstrate. My favorite thing is to see you activated. Demonstration only, we only do that just so that you can see an example of what it might be like. But one of the things I love about our Exploring the Prophetic podcast is I think there's about 130 or 150 of them out. 
and over the last two and a half years, and, and you have stories from every kind of person, whether it be a mom or a movie star or a politician or whatever, from many nations who are sharing how when they hear from God, their world changed, and then they changed the world around them. And that's what I believe. So that's where we're coming from. I have a lot of resources about it. Most of them are free. We do have some books and stuff on the table. But we have a YouTube show. We have a podcast. We have two TV shows. There's a lot of ways, if you're liking what I, I'll, I'll overload you with stuff. If you like me at all, like, you can just find me online, and there's too much. So just pick one. You know, don't, don't get overwhelmed, because I want to do life with you. I want to I go on a journey with you. Well, this is the shortest pulpit I've ever been at. I love the pastors of this church and their vertical challenge. It's great. Wow. When I was uh, young, I was, I was around 15 years old, and w- my dad was in the Air Force. We just got transferred, and they had their choice of going to Washington, D.C., where he can go after being a full general, or if he was going to just be, stay a colonel, or I think it was light colonel, he was going to be a colonel, and we're going to move to Sacramento, California. And our family prayed, and we felt like we were supposed to go to Sacramento, but we were in the midst of a, a mini kind of revival that was happening amongst a small town in Central California where uh, most of the high school got saved, the, the public high school, and we were right in the middle of it. And uh, it was just such an exciting time to see so many people get saved. It was from a Baptist youth group, and it was a cessationist Baptist church. And our family was the enigma where they were like, we like what you do and who you are, but don't bring all of it here, but do it. Do it outside of us and then bring all the people here, but don't do that thing in the church that you guys do. And I, people ask me, who are your main spiritual parents? It's my parents. They're now 80 and 78 They've been married for 57 years, and they've loved the Lord my whole life. It's just been beautiful to watch. So I was raised by them. I was raised without the limitation of a life that came, had to escape the world. So my parents' worst fear came true when I was around 15 years old, and I told them, I want to go and minister to the war zones and to prostitutes and to Hollywood. And they screamed and were like, what are we raising? Because they thought the church was the best thing they've ever seen. And they both escaped the world, so they were so excited to go to conferences and events. And I was like, if it doesn't work in a war zone, it doesn't work in church. So we have to see. So my parents were very disappointed but very happy at the same time because they were raising me. But during that time when I was 15, I had seven friends die of different tragedies. And I was so young, and I had, I've never had a, a walk-away period from the Lord, but there was a period that was really just a dark period. And I'd grown up around the church, and I saw a lot of wonderful miracles, and I even heard God and saw some of the gifts manifest, but I didn't have that personal intimacy connection fully yet developed. So when they all died, I felt like the sky was falling, and I felt like I wanted to just die. I wasn't suicidal like I was depressed because I didn't think life was worth it. I just wanted to be with them in heaven because they were all Christians. They all died of different things. Three of them I had led to the Lord, so I was happy they were in heaven, but it was just really hard. As a 15-year-old who had just moved into a new, new city and had no friends yet, and I looked around and I thought, I don't want to start all over. I don't want to do this again. And so I, I just became a little dark for a season, and I began to read the Bible instead of being dark and just, you know, get goth or something. I, I listen to hardcore now, man, you know. I just started reading the Bible a lot, and, and, and sometimes, like, all night I would read and I wouldn't sleep very much. And I just started to cry out like the Habakkuk thing, God, I stand in awe of who you are. And I hear all these things that you've done. And my parents have been involved with all this stuff and other people's families and a revival history and the saints and the mystics, you know, from the Catholic church. And I was reading all this stuff and I was saying, if I don't see this in my lifetime, it's not worth living anymore. And I can't just see it for me. I have to see you move 
And if it doesn't happen for people who are the least of these, it doesn't matter to me. And so I felt him challenge me when I was around 16 and a half years old. I started to go down to um, a street down in Sacramento, and I'd bring youth, and we'd all lie to each other's parents or lie to our parents and tell them we were going to each other's house to spend the night, but we'd stay out all night and minister to prostitutes and pimps on the street. And, and we did this for months. Like, we did this every Friday night for months, and so we started to get a reputation. We'd bring them food. We'd love on them. We'd pray for them. We became the youth that, hey, go to them if you're sick or if you need something. And I just remember feeling like the best reputation I ever had in my life that we would go down and there'd be prostitutes who would be like, Sean, and hug me and hold me. Like, I couldn't wait to see you, you know. Like, and so we were at a meeting with Catherine Coleman's last living disciple at the time besides Benny Hinn. And she called me out. It was a small meeting. She called me out in front of my parents. My parents brought me to this meeting. I didn't know this woman. And she called me out and she said, you, you've been ministering to prostitutes on Friday nights. And you've been sneaking out of your house and having youth sneak out of their house. And she, she didn't call me out. And my parents were like, we can't ground you for this, but what do we do? We're really mad at you. So I only went back a few more times just because my parents put some restrictions up. I don't know why. And, um, you know, it started, the good stuff started happening at like one in the morning, so I was really disappointed. But, uh, but I remember just feeling like, God, I want the reputation that when you walk past the broken, they know that there's hope and there's possible change and there's possible transformation. Now, one of the stories, I, just, I tell that story because one of the stories in that one of the, the things that lit me up is I was in this um, pub, very big public school, thousands of students, and I was still kind of going through a dark period where I was trying to figure out hope. And there's these uh, wonderful students. I was a football player for American football, not, not your kind of football. And we would have two-a-day exercises, and I loved it, but they canceled my morning exercise. And so I ended up going back um, into a choir class, of all things, a show choir, like Glee or a show choir. And they made us go as football players because there's nothing else for us to do. So we would sleep in that period. But there's this teacher that came along, and he was a wonderful teacher and taught us how to sing. It was great. But in that class, it was all the broken birds of the school because we all got kind of shuffled into this elective class. And two of the girls who I really was just, I just had a heart for, and I would always speak to them. I'd say, this is who you are. Who you are isn't what you're doing right now. Who you are is this. And I would speak to them what I saw in God without putting a lot of spiritual language to it. And one of them, her name's CJ, and I said, CJ, you're a leader. You're made to be loved. You're made, you, you, have so, you say something, and it lands on our hearts, and we all listen to you. If you tell us to be quiet, the whole room stops. It's like, what does CJ think? Well, one of the nights we were out on the, um, the streets, I walked by, and there's CJ as a prostitute. I realized I was 16 and a half years old. She was 17 when she was in school with us, and now she's 18. And I look over at her, and I go, CJ! And she's like, Sean! And you'd think we were the best friends. Well, my youth group was horrified because they didn't know why I knew her so well. And we're hugging, and she's crying in my arms. And she's like, Naomi's over there, which was one of the other girls from school. So I run over, and Naomi's now only 16. And I run over, and I hug Naomi. And Naomi's trying to pay for three children she's had already by being on the streets. And, and I said, you guys, I don't want to take away from your work. Do you have time to eat with us? Like, let me take you to the diner. Like, is that okay? Like, can we take? Like, no problem. So they came with us from their prostitution night and came over to the diner, and they ate with us. And my youth sat there on one side of the Denny's, and we sat, I sat in between them, and we're just talking like old friends because we really had a friendship. And, but we hadn't seen each other in about a year. And so they, um, they were telling me about their life, and it was terrible. Like what was coming out of their mouth, and then they'd say, it's okay, though. And then they would come out. So I looked at my youth, and I go, okay, I want you guys to, to love them and tell them who they are, but don't tell them who they're not. And we had this beautiful moment where these youth 
who had us and them. These were prostitutes before they sat at the table with us and they were my friends. They were prostitutes who were those guys, those other people. And all of a sudden they're at a table of friendship and they're seeing these girls in their full value. They don't care that one of them is on drugs. They don't care that the other one is being beaten by her boyfriend as subjecting herself to that relationship who's pimping her out. They just see these, these two real human beings who I have a lot of joy for and who have a lot of joy for me and they became part of our inner friendship circle for that dinner and they began to speak into their lives and these girls are crying and they only had a Christian foundation but her mom was the first one who sold her into prostitution so she left home early. And they, when they're just weeping, and I just remember just, I was in the, you know, seven friends who had just died. I was only a year and a half away from that. And I just said, okay, now I see the kingdom. Now I see it's why, why it's worth it. Because the church that I was going to was so preoccupied with what the devil was doing and what man was not doing that they didn't even care about these girls and what they were doing and who they were in God. And Jesus came and he picked the most unusual people. I love his pick. I love, I love his picker because our picker's broken a lot. But his picker is so beautiful. He picked these people who are completely who we would have never picked. None of you would have picked Peter, I promise. Zero of us would have picked Saul who became Paul. We would have been like, yeah, not so much. I mean, it'd be like saying Kim Jong-un or a generation. Hey, Kim Jong-un is going to be the apostle of the whole world right now. It's going to be great. North Korea is going to come into revival. It'll be really great. None of us see that happening. But four years ago, I remember standing in a class, and I was super annoyed by um, a famous Hollywood family because of, I watched a couple of their episodes on a plane on the way home. I hadn't seen it before. And their names are the Kardashians. I was super annoyed. And as I was watching this show, I was like, this is such a bad representation of America. I can't believe, I, I, I love them in Christ. But no, it's like, I was so frightened. And I got home and my wife prays for them. We live in Hollywood. We live right around the corner from where the show is taped. Literally, it's one and a half blocks away until they moved to Calabasas. And, uh, and my wife's like, Sean, we got to pray for them. So I would say things that were Christian derogatory, meaning they had a hopeful spin, but they were like, oh, you know the Kardashians. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing corruption to America. They're bringing, you know, and I'm the one who teaches you can't have authority over what you don't love or who you don't love. And I'm saying certain things, but I'm just saying it very subtly. And I don't even know how aggravated I am with them. And my wife looks at me, it was five years ago. Um, my wife looks at me and says, you teach that you have to love first and you're aggravated and she goes, there's many body parts, and one of them is, a, is an a-hole, and you're being one. And I was like, I don't want to be the body of Christ's butthole. And she goes, what if this aggravation that's in your soul is because as you pray for them, you're going to get a vision for them. And you're going to start to understand who they are. And you're going to start to love who they're supposed to be. And you're going to see what the redemptive destiny was, not who they're not today. I remember just saying, yes, honey, yes, honey, shut up, honey. But not really, just, you know, when you do that, like, conflict avoidance, like, mm-hmm. It's super nice of you to pastor me in this moment. We all need those relationships. And, and, I, and I was aggravated for about a year after that. And I started to think, like, I had faith for CJ and Naomi, which has led me to in front of literally hundreds of prostitutes and thousands of kids in war zones. And then also has led me to Hollywood, where there's a lot of people who feel like we have the spiritual third world nations and all the conflict zones and war zones. LA and Hollywood feels like the spiritual conflict zone and war zone of culture and place where people get prostituted, but it's, it's their gifts and their talents. You know, There's not very many people who haven't laid down a really important relationship for their career in a way that was prostitution. 
and the spirit. And so like I was led there. So I had to look at these people with the same compassion, not us and them, not the Kardashian family versus the Christians or whatever, because they fundamentally love God. They profess Jesus. And I had to like change my heart. And I remember just praying about it. And I was teaching a prophetic class and it was a rather large class. So it was really hard to do. We couldn't do one-on-one. And we did a question and answer time. There's like a thousand people there. So we couldn't do like the activations we normally do, which is activities to get you prophesying because we just couldn't control a thousand people in the room. And I remember one of the people asked, what do you think about people in culture like Kanye West? And I just thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about the Kardashians or Kanye West because I'm still working on that in my own testimony. (laughs) I'm still working on my own heart. But out of my mouth comes Kanye West is a prophet to our generation who's going to be a worship leader and lead stadium events. So I began to prophesy and it's all like, and it goes viral because it was on the internet. So all these people are like, you think Kanye West is crazy. He just went and had his mental breakdown. He was currently in the breakdown when I prophesied this. So it was, it was wild. And so people, some of his friends were contacting me going, do you think he's going to be okay? And I'm like, it's not the kind of time that you prophesy and you're like, Pastor Bill, you're going to be an apostle in a greater way to the nations. Of course he is. Like, it's Bill. Like if God upgrades Bill, we'll all just be happier, you know? But someone who's like, kind of offensive to culture, not only Christian culture, but also to, I mean, he was, did all kinds of stuff in his journey. Like he hosted the porn awards and did all kinds of, like all kinds of stuff in his journey. And I'm prophesying and I kept every class I would do. I'd say, we have to take the people that are hard for our soul. One of the ones that was for me was Kanye West. And I had to see who it was in the spirit. And God actually gave me an extreme word for him. And I don't always get extreme words for these people, but I actually prophesied in the redemptive identity or destiny of God over Kanye's life. He's actually called to be a prophet to our generation. He's a creative genius. God has put a heart of David inside of him and we need to pray for him. So we started prayer meetings all around for Kanye and the whole thing. And if you told me, five years ago that Justin Bieber would be leading Instagram prayer meetings, that Kanye West would be leading revivals in stadiums, that our vice president of our United States would be a prophet who hears from God, who like literally listens to God for every decision he makes and a sort of faith coalition for other people in government, both Democratic and Republican. If you had told me that Mel Gibson, that he would come out of his hard time by having a vision he was supposed to make the resurrection of Christ movie and heard God and God walked him out with therapy, but also through the word of God where he heard God, saw demons, cast them out of his house and is walking with Jesus. Now, if you told me that five years ago, I would have been like, wow. Because right next to real faith is delusion. (laughs) And some of us are so afraid of delusion that we won't walk in real faith. So I'm going to take you on a journey tonight because I believe, I believe that what God's going to do is so astounding that your frame of mind you're in right now can't imagine a dream with God. Even if you're a dreamer, even if you're one who's like, I could see it all happening. The way that God brings things is oftentimes so contradictory to what we expected or hoped for, but it's compatible. It's not contradictory like, oh, I wish he wouldn't have done that way. It's compatible in the sense of like, he did it greater, Ephesians 3.20, than I could have hoped for or dreamed for or imagined in my wildest dreams. And I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow. I wanna go into kind of a, a picture because I wanna prove to you tonight that you're wired for connection with God. You're not only wired to hear God's voice, you're already hearing his voice. And some of you are like, I, I'm not the prophetic one of my family. I had a man come up to me and he said, my wife's the prophetic one. And I said, I hate that. And he said, I do too. And I said, no, 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 I hate that you said that. He's a businessman I've known for a number of years. He has three awesome kids uh, who are all adults, and he's very wealthy, and he, and he said his wife, you know, like, do you have a word for me? My wife's the prophetic one. I don't ever hear from God. I need some direction for my life. 
And I said, no, I hate that. I, I, I want to take that excuse away from you. I don't want to be your prophet. I think you're your own best personal prophet, but you're using an excuse that you don't hear from God when you actually hear from him powerfully, but you're not recognizing it, so you can't partner your faith to it. You know, even the devil believes in God, but that doesn't mean he has faith in God. And the church right now believes in God, but we're not in faith with who God's nature is. We're not manifesting faith towards culture. And God wants to give us that kind of faith that when we look at the hard cases of culture, that we actually start to see who God is, who he's called him to be, and that we don't care about the bad report. It's kind of like Caleb and Joshua. They came back and they saw something that was so extreme and they didn't care about the bad report. They were like, it's filled with milk and honey. And I would have been so discouraged if, if the other reports were listened to after I've given a report and it's happened to me in some ways. We're all of a sudden like, we're not gonna go that direction even though that sounds good. We think you're idealistic. You're, you're kind of a visionary. We're gonna go this way because it's safe. And the church has, we're kind of in one of those times in 2020 where it's a jump off point where God's opening a window that things that would take 20 years can happen this year. This is such a pivot year. It's such a time that we could jump through into spaces, start a business, create a ministry, create something that is a voice, that, that there's a, a moment in time right now that we can miss it if we don't jump in. It will take longer if we don't jump in and partner our faith. And the good news is, God wants it more than we do. So he's waking us up. He's speaking to us. He's caused you to come here so that you can experience who he is and his wiring inside of you. And so this man, after he said that to me, I said, I can prove to you in 15 minutes that you hear from God. And I said, okay, go ahead. So I said, tell me the last great big win you had with one of your kids when you gave him finances. Because he's a businessman. So he, you know, one of the ways business people a lot of times operate in their love language is to help resource their children and their family. So I said, what's one of the last times that it made a big difference? And he goes, okay, I have a perfect time. He said, my son had uh, taken a year off from college and he's finished now, he's doing great, but he took a year off to go in the mission field. He met a woman from a third world nation, a developing nation. She's amazing. She had an Ivy League degree and she is like driven. She's an alpha female and he, and he met her and they were getting married. The problem is, she had never had family. She'd never owned a house. None of her family had ever been a part of owning resources. So a lot of what she represents, excuse me, as a justice cause is actually theoretical. I felt like she needed to actually experience nesting in a home that she didn't want to have children because of how she was raised. And I felt, my wife and I felt like she needed to have children, like that was part of who she was. And I said, okay, so what happened? And he said, well, we took a portion of their inheritance and we gave it to him early to not just buy a home, but to buy their dream home so that she could find a place of nesting and they could actually make a family. And I was like, that's, how did your other kids respond? Because now the other kids, and he said, actually, they, they felt it was God as well. They felt it was a good thing to do as well. I said, so how did you know to do that? And he goes, I just knew. I just, it was just intuition. And I said, okay, so it wasn't God. And he goes, no, I just made a decision. I mean, God could have been on it. I said, when, when did you make the decision? And he goes, well, we have this little room in our house designated as our prayer room, and we were praying about what to do for them for their wedding. I said, you are such an idiot. <laughs> you made a decision in your own right, out of intuition, that cut off a generational curse, that created resource, that cost it. Now, what happened? Tell me what happened. And he goes, well, in their first year of marriage, she actually got pregnant and she started nesting in that house and she was so happy to be a mom. It changed everything in her life. She changed her career from like this big, you know, justice career to being something that she could manage from home because she's like, this is what I want to be. I want to be a mom and have a part-time career and I still want to do justice, but I'm going to start a foundation to cause from home. And she, now they're, um, they've had two children and they're pregnant with their third as of the time I talked to him in this. And I go, so your, your decision as just a good father 
changed a destiny, cut off generational curses, created, cut off poverty, cut off a mindset that was wrong. You're a, you're a pretty big hero of this story. Do you see anything wrong with this story at all? Anything? anything? And he's like, not so much. He's like, no, I'm kidding. He said, oh, okay, wait a minute. So I said, how did you, tell me initially when you thought, I need to give them a portion of their inheritance. Was it your wife or you? He goes, no, it was me. How did you think? He goes, well, inside that place where when I get real quiet and I make decisions from, that's where I heard it. But it was my voice. It wasn't God's voice. I'm like, do you realize that God abides inside of you? And that we're the only religion that our God lives inside of us and tells us from the inside out. He speaks to us from the inside out, not just to do things for him, but to do things with him. That the God who doesn't fit in the universe he created is living inside of you as his temple. I mean, this is our God. So let me, I'll take you back to that story. But John, John does a really good job of laying out this theme. And he starts in John 10 and he says, you know, there's a good shepherd and a sheep hears voice when he lets him out to pasture, which would be outside of the gates, it'd be outside the church. When he lets him out to pasture, they, they know it's him sending them out. And when he brings them back in, they know his voice. They know when it's not his voice. So he's, he's starting to set up like what Jesus was saying about fellowship with him, connection to him, that God wants to be seen as a good shepherd, not a dictator, even a benevolent dictator, but a good shepherd as someone who's caring for his flock. Then we get into John 14, and he starts to prophesy about the fact that Holy Spirit's gonna come and fill us as well. Then John 16, he actually says, it's good that I go. So this is the first time he's revealing I'm going somewhere. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come and operate the same way I've had this connection to the Father. You're gonna have this place of inner dialogue with the Father. You're gonna be online, so to speak. We're the only generation that can fully understand that so far. You're gonna be online. You're gonna be connected right now. And they said, oh, no, we don't want you to leave. Because it'll actually be better that I leave because then you'll have this in its fullness of what we already intended. Then in John 17, John shows how Jesus, it was such an intimate moment. He prays for this connection to happen. He prays for them to stand in oneness together, which is all of us, as they're one, and that they would be one in him as he's one with the Father. He prays for the level of connection that we're not worthy of. That's the most beautiful resource we have that most of us are in denial of because we don't understand how to operate in it. And yet it's one of our first birthrights to know our God, to be in communion and connection to him, just as he designed in the garden in the first place. Then he goes to the garden to Gethsemane and he's, he's one of the disciples to pray with them and they're so tired, they fall asleep. Funny enough, I was in Israel a month ago and it was my first time and I've wanted to go my whole life. My wife and I went with a small crew just to have like a real experience. It was like a real small crew. And um, we were so firehose. Have you ever heard of Rabbi Jason Sobel? He wrote the book with Kathy Lee Gifford, the, the, the Road, the Rabbi, and the Rock, or something like that. It's a New York Times bestselling book. He just, they just released it last year. So Jason took us, and he not only is an incredible teacher and understands history, but he also is prophetic. So he's, he's firehosing us for like 12 hours a day. So by the time we got to the Garden of Gethsemane, it was like five days in. And we go to the little private garden that you have to have like a key to, and we're in there. And I've always thought, just in my idealism from the time I was a youth, one day I will go to the garden and I will pray with Jesus the way he longed to be prayed with. You know, I will pray with him. And by the time I got there, I was so slap happy that all I could do was giggle. <laughs> my wife looked at me and said, what's wrong? And I go, I go to sleep right here. And I just lay down on the bench and I'm like, I gotta go to sleep. I'm so tired. I'm so overwhelmed. 
and I laid down. I'm like, oh no, I'm in the garden. I can't do that. So I stood up and I walked around. I'm looking over the Western gate where Jesus is going to return and I could have nothing. There's like no emotional sentimentality. There's no, I mean, I wasn't crying out, Jesus return. I was crying out, give me a bed, please, right now. So I, I fellowship with the wrong part of the scripture there. But Jesus is in this garden and he asked the father something very peculiar and John captures it very uniquely and intimately. And he says, father, and he knows he's going to the cross. He's used the cross as a metaphor over and over before he's prophesied the cross as a destination. He said, deny yourself, pick up your cross before he was ever announced he was going there. So he's prophesied it as a destination of where this thing has to end. It started with a tree, it's gonna end with a tree. So he, he's, he knows, and he cries out, Father, if there's any other way that you could take this cup from me, if there's any other way, would you, would you help me? And there's no resolution in the book of John. It's really interesting because you'd think John, his most intimate friend, would have described it more, but it was in other parts of the scripture, so the scriptures could be made complete about this. But he goes to the cross, and he goes, you know, in an amazing way to the cross because he's, he, he goes through the bloodiest trial. If you've ever seen The Passion of Christ, it's, it's a depiction that a lot of scholars think was actually mild compared to what really happened in torture. And so, you know, you look at this and you just go, wow, you went, even though you were at the place of bleeding in your sweat over anxiety over this decision, you still chose us. We see later on in the writer of Hebrews 12, you know, we don't know if the writer of Hebrews was Paul or John or a woman. We don't know. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. I know that's controversial. I said it on purpose because some of you need to love women and who, who they are in the Christ. But Hebrews 12 verse 2, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So now we know that when John saw him in the garden and when Jesus described that in the garden to John so he could write about it because John was asleep, that there was a joy that was set before him that he saw something that caused him and compelled him out of his great love to endure that price. Now I'll come back to that in a little bit. First Corinthians um, chapter two. I just wanna read this to you real fast just because it's important. This is verse eight or nine to the end. Uh, but as it's written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered in the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him, who hold him in affectionate reverence, who obey him, who gratefully recognize the benefits he has bestowed. This is the amplified version. For God has unveiled them and revealed them to us by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the whole Old Testament, over and over, there's this theme. And it's God who's rebuking his people saying, you don't know my mind, you don't have my heart, you can't consult me on the matter. Who put the stars in the sky? Me. And then Paul is actually saying, we're in a new dispensation. The things that no eye could see and no ear can hear, he's revealed it to us by the Spirit. Then he starts to describe something. Now realize, you're the first generation of people on the earth that almost all of us have a smart device. If you have a smart device, just pat it for a second. It might be in your purse, in your pocket. You might be holding it. It might be your cell phone or your pad or, you know, it could be Galaxy or Apple, whatever. You have this smart device. And out of the smart device, which is an interesting psychology right now in the world, because it's become an extension of us. And out of the smart device, we have been the most connected generation to relationships and community of any generation, but the least impacted by the connection. Very interesting. We don't have time to talk about that, but I love the psychology behind that. But you know, when there's an update to be had for your favorite app or for the whole device, that the cloud communicates through invisible waves to your device, and your device does things and it starts to work better. 
You didn't initiate it. Most of the time, it's automatic. You didn't even notice it happened. You just go, oh, a new feature. That's so cute. I can do new kitties. This is amazing. I love these new kitty icons. They're amazing. I hope that's not you. Kitties are fine. But all of a sudden, you have new features that happen because invisible clouds from technology warehouses send them to your phone. And all of a sudden, you have an upgraded experience because you have invisible waves that come and fill your device that's in your pocket or your purse and change the capacity in which you communicate and connect. Where does God live? In the cloud! God lives in the cloud. And what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2 is the clearest expression of what Jesus prophesied in John 14 and 16, where he said the Holy Spirit will come to you. Now here's what he says, and this is important. I'm reading the Amplified Version, which is a little expanded. He says, for God has unveiled all these things and revealed them to us by his Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things diligently, even the sounding and measuring, the profound depths of God, the divine counsels and things far beyond human understanding. For what person knows the thoughts and motives of man except the man's spirit within him? So also no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Holy Spirit is from God, so that we may know and understand the wonderful things freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught or supplied by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining and interpreting spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now in this, he's giving you massive entitlement. You know, we have a generation who has a wrong spirit of entitlement. God is giving you massive entitlement. He's saying, I have wired you to understand and know the depths of my process. Now, where do we see this in the scripture before? Solomon. That's the first place this appears before. Solomon has a dream and God says, Solomon, you can have anything you want. What do you want? And he says, I want to be able to perceive and know your inner thoughts about how you would lead. He doesn't say wisdom. That word wisdom is so shallow. It's an English word that just doesn't capture it. He says Shema, which is a Hebrew word for, I want to know the counsel or the perceptions of your thoughts inside of my thoughts. I want to occupy your brain to occupy my mind so I can lead the people the way, exactly the way you would perceive and do it. And it's a very spiritual word. This is not like, a, uh, I just need discernment. I just need to know what's good and bad. This is a word that says, I need communion. Another time we see this is in Daniel 1.17, where these young men were filled with what, what is called in the Hebrew, divine intelligence. They were filled with the Holy Spirit who let them think and operate in levels that's not humanly possible without God. Now we see it again in 1 Corinthians 2, when you're wondering, what is the prophetic? You were wired to hear from God, and he gives you thoughts, and now your job is to discern between what's you and what's God. Why does he do it from within? Because the Holy Spirit is proving that he's with you. He's the Elohim, the El Shaddai. He's the God who's with us. He's the one who walks inside of you from the inside out and is transforming you and then the world around you. Now, we all as Christians believe this to some degree, but we don't actually operate in a great faith measure in it the way that we're called to. And God wants a generation who says, I know what's in God's thoughts. I have the word in my heart, but I also know what he thinks about this culture. I know what he thinks about this country. I can see what he's doing. And we offer solutions to problems that can never be fixed financially. We offer a third option where there's only two options on the, the table for racism. We offer a third option like Nelson Mandela did several times. We offer it with not human wisdom, but spiritual eyes that see what's in God's heart. I think of... Uh, this man, and I, I, I'm the businessman I mentioned earlier, and I said, okay, so you discerned God's heart over the situation, and because you had the counsel of his heart, the way he thought, 
with wisdom, he's self-admittedly not very emotionally intelligent. So the fact that he perceived that a son would never have children with this woman without God intervening was huge. So he had emotional intelligence that was far above his emotional pay grade, right? And he had this moment. So when he saw that it was God, not him, I said, when, when else do you hear from God? And he goes, oh my gosh, I hear God all the time because he convicts me of sin. Like at night when I go to bed, I ask him for areas of opportunity. I ask him for ways that I can do things differently. And he takes me through conversations. I remember them and they're highlighted. And I know I need to apologize to that person tomorrow. Or I need to think differently about how I treat them. Or I need to give them more opportunity. And he starts to see that he has an inner navigation that's going on that's not human intuition, but is actually the Holy Spirit that he's invited into his life in a powerful way. But he's not been uh, seeing him in an obvious way. And so he's not participating in an obvious way. So it's happening to him instead of with him. And he realizes, oh my gosh, I have other wins with my kids, especially when it came to resources. Now, the two ways that we learn how to really hear from God in the beginning stages, and most of you who are mature can relate to this, is the conviction of sin. And it's the worst because you, I mean, like we are so powerful in this generation. Like it's hard to let someone speak into our lives. Like I know so many leaders in this generation. There's even people who have 500 Instagram followers and they become an influencer now because they have 500. I'm like, 500, really? That's what made you an, okay. You can't really get paid sponsorship, but now you're the most powerful person in your life. It's harder to speak into your heart. So if a Christian in our generation gets convicted of sin, you know that's not them. They just aren't that good. It's Holy Spirit living within us saying, hey, mm, the way you treated her right now, that's just not a, I don't care if she's the you know, cell phone customer service lady who had three bad people and is treating you like crap. That's not how you treat her. I want you to come higher. And you're like, oh, okay. I'm not gonna make the choice I was gonna make. So we know this one. We know the conviction of sin. That is what the voice of God sounds like. We also know when he asks us, when he's training us to really hear his voice, he asks us for things. It's the worst and the best. He ties your value to things you would never say yes to except for if he put inside of you an incentive, which is, hey, you wanna obey me for something really fun? You're like, yeah, and is it give a bunch of money to this person who you don't know? Oh, that's fun, Jesus? Is that, have you ever been ambushed by one of your friends? Like, I mean, Holy Spirit's my only friend who can get me to do things that I, I mean, Sean Foyt is one of my friends like this. He can get me to do things that I would never say yes to, but because it's Sean, I'm like, okay, I'll go. And I'm like, why am I going? And the whole way there, I'm like, oh, why am I going? This is so stupid. Why am I going? Sean, and then we get there, we have a blast. And I'm like, I'm so glad I went. That was a great idea I had. No, it's because Sean's crazy. I had this secret idea of a TV show. I've told Matt, Matt Crouch about it. I said, we're going to get Sean Foyt and myself and a couple other people, and we're going to go do basically jackass meets the extreme mission field, and we'll do, like, stunts and crazy stuff. I'll be the one who's the instigator, so I don't have to do everything. I'll just pull the strings like a puppet master with Sean. But we'll get guys who are willing to do anything. It'll be great. And then we'll go do the missions, too. Wouldn't be a great show? We should totally do that. But when you have a friend who you love, who has adventure in their hearts, and they ask you to do something, they can overpower your no by their, want to do it? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's going to be so good. And you're like, no, it's not. I'm going to die. No, come on. You might die, but I think you won't die. That's who Holy Spirit is in our heart. My wife and I are in church, you know, five, six years ago, I think. Yeah, it was six years ago. We were newly married. We've been married for eight years. So we're two years in. We're saving up for a house in LA, which is super easy because it's totally cheap. And, uh, and so, like, realize if you save up for a house in LA, it starts out like a starter home that's in the ghetto is a million dollars US. Can you imagine that? And I'm like, why have you sent me to a city, God, 
where ministers don't thrive because there's no way to get into it. You like have to rent and rent is hard too. So we're, we're saving it for houses and faith. And our saving is like, at the time was really little. And so we were just starting, you know, we were out of debt, had no, you know, no obligations, but it was going to be a slow time saving. We're sitting on the front row of our church and our, we, we have a couple homes in different places. And one of them happens to be in Bangoma, Africa. And it's a children's rescue center that we started and the motto is today's or, or yesterday's orphans, today's leaders. And so we have other children's homes we work with. When we meet kids, especially that we've rescued off of streets or in slums or whatever, if they want to come to this home, they have to agree that they have assignment from God over the nation to be a leader. So if they're eight years old, they have to say yes to that. Otherwise, we put them in a place that's normal, so there's no pressure on them. Because we're looking at, you're going to go all the way through college and become a Supreme Court justice. You're going to do something in justice. You're not going to move out of Kenya. You're going to actually stay in Kenya. And they've all agreed. So we've had a couple of crops come through. They're amazing kids. Well, one of them, um, our, one of my best friends, Jennifer Toledo, found him when he was eight years old. Really sad condition. Well, now, and I've met him several times. And now he's sharing how he's graduating high school on video and just thanking our church for paying his, for his life, for spiritually adopting him. And he and his friends just asked the directors of the school or the, the, the children's center if they could make a video for our church. How sweet is that? Not to ask for anything, just out of honor to say thank you. Like our life is different because of you. So my wife's never been there. She, she's never been anywhere like uh, extreme. And so she's never been to, you know, wherever. So she, but she's watching this. She totally has a compassionate heart, but she's watching this. And as she's saying it, he's, he shares the dream. He goes, because of you, I now dream to be a lawyer and I want to be a teacher, probably of law. Thank you so much. And my wife goes, we have to pay his college. Now, this is not a pitch video. This is not like a video where they're asking for money to pay for kids' college. I'm like, no, we don't. She goes, ask Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, should we pay his college? No? Okay. But in my heart, I'm hearing like, no, you need to sow into this young man's college. You need to actually care for this young man. You're believing that there's leaders being raised up. You have to take action. Now, we know it's God when we don't want to do it. When the, when the pastor of this church comes up and says, hey, we need 25 more children's workers to make children's ministry really work, and you're single and you don't even have kids, and all of a sudden your hand goes up, you know that's God, not you. You're not like, yeah, I want to spend two services out of my four services a month with children. When you don't have children, that's like hard. And when you do have children, it's harder. Because you're like, I need every, like services become your babysitting time where you actually are like, I can breathe and sit down and they're not calling me. I didn't hear dad 25 times. Like if you hear as a parent, you're supposed to be in children's ministry, unless you have the gift of nurturing, nursing, and, and a PhD in love, then it's hard. So we know Holy Spirit's good at telling us to do things we don't want to do. He's good at getting, so you need to reverse engineer like my friend who is the businessman and look for those areas that he said something or put something in you or areas of win and victory that you might have credited yourself. Like, I got a promotion at work. I'm awesome. And actually go, wait, how did I get into this job? How did the promotion come? Was there other people who were actually more likely? And what has God been talking to me about? What's in my time and my season? And actually walk with God. I feel like these are the things that start to help us to understand when we know our own season with God, we have authority to navigate others people, other people's seasons with God. And I feel like one of the frustrating things in culture, especially Christian charismatic culture, is that the majority of people who come to our ministry and, and ask us for need, it's not, will you interest in how to hear from God? That's number two. Number one is, should I get a divorce? Or am I going to stay bankrupt? Or where's my missing child? And they're asking us to be a psychic. Not to be another Christian who's praying with you because you have the authority to actually hear from God for your life. 
Now realize Martin Luther, if you're a Protestant in here, Martin Luther nailed a thesis to the Wittenberg door, chapel door. It was a number of theses. There's hundreds of points. But one of the main points was he was sick of everybody looking to somebody else to be their mediator between heaven and earth. So he said, we are each justified by our own faith in God. That's our theology. If you're Protestant, you have that theology. If you're Catholic, you may not have that theology. But uh, it's a good one to think about. And he said, you're justified by your own faith in God. And in that justification, when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a priest who goes, okay, these are my people. Come over here one at a time. I will talk to you. Okay, Jesus, you can let this one in. You can let this one in. Jesus is the high priest. And we're each supposed to have our own relationship with him. And we've been given the word to actually navigate that relationship and the spirit to breathe life into it. Now, that means each one of you is your own best personal prophet. And if somebody comes in in the New Testament and has a word for you that contradicts what you believe inside of you and you listen to them, you're going to experience a type of failure because you're not, no longer in intimacy walking out God's life for you. If Paul said to Agabus, no, I guess I won't go to Rome because you've given me a prophetic word as a prophet, so I better listen to you. When the Lord told him clearly, he even said, Agabus, Agabus, thank you, but God's told me to go to Rome. I have to go to Rome. Like, that was huge in the Bible, in the New Testament, because Agabus wasn't considered a false prophet. He was still considered a prophet. But Paul was justified by his own ability to hear from God. And there's so many times that we're going to somebody to get a solution, not prayer to help here or prayer to identify God. We're looking externally for God when he's already internal. He's already with us. And this is when we violate relationship with him, and it's really sad. Now, to get prayer is never violating. But to get prayer with the intention that you don't have God inside of you, and he can't solve something with you, is saying, the Father in heaven who thought of good works for you to do before the beginning of time, who dreamed of you for the equivalent of millions of years before you were born, can't communicate to you and can't connect to you. And Jesus died on the cross, not for just like a little bit of a repair. Have you ever gone, like, taking your smart device to a repair shop and it never worked the same again? Anybody done that? When he gives you your device back, your, your spirit back, when he breathes life into your spirit, you are not just upgraded. You're not just fixed. You are brought into a version that doesn't exist on the earth yet. You are wired for connectivity that doesn't exist outside of Christians. We're all wired for it in humanity, but it doesn't have full life until the Spirit of God comes. Now, let's take it further, real fast. John, I love John. He was the beloved of Jesus, um, self-proclaimed, and so that gives me a lot of courage. I'm his favorite. You should feel the same way. I, I always go to my parents. I'm like, you know I'm your favorite. Like, Jennifer and Cindy don't really matter that much. I mean, they're great, but, you know, I'm the one who matters, right? And they're like, yes, don't tell your sisters. But they say the same thing to them. I feel like I have these relationship uh, moments with God sometimes where I'm like, I mean, you know, like, thank you. He's like, that's cute. But John would proclaim he was the favorite of God. And then he has the revelation of all revelations. And this is such an important book in the Bible, not because of eschatology. We're going to press pause on eschatology tonight, okay? So if you're pre-trib or post-trib, are you going to be left behind or flash forward or millennialism or preterism or partial preterism or the mark of the beast or the Illuminati or the Nephilim or whatever you are, Press pause. It's all exhausting. That, that won't get you to heaven. So, like, just press pause. The book of Revelation, before it's that kind of thing, it's a love letter. And it's an exposing of God's intention towards humanity. And the first part of this book is Revelation chapter 1. John sees Jesus. And he doesn't see Jesus that just returned in the upper room and in these places. He sees Jesus in his full glory. He sees Jesus in the way that Moses cried out for, but he could only see the backside of God. 
He sees Jesus face to face and he almost dies but doesn't die. Now that right there could have been the revelation of revelations. I would have been happy. I cry out all the time to see Jesus. I wanna see your face. I wanna know you. I wanna see you the way you wanna be seen. I wanna see you in your glory. You prayed in John 17. John saw it in Revelation chapter one. There's precedence for it scripturally. I pray that. I wanna see you. Because when John saw him, it changed him. And he couldn't describe it, but he did the best of anyone I know who's actually seen Jesus. Because people who've seen Jesus is a cocker spaniel Jesus, he has a cocker spaniel hairdo. He's a white man with blue eyes. I've never been to the Middle East, not once. They've been to England. You know, they've, they've been to the white parts of England. They have not been. So all those old Renaissance pictures and stuff, it was like so neutered from reality of culture. And Jesus, he sees Jesus and he sees, you know, hair is wool and flaming fire. And he's like, and he describes it. And you think it's almost like, can't you do a better job? But he's so overwhelmed that the book captures the emotions of what he was experiencing. And he even falls down as though he's dead and God touches him so he could stand back up to prove to us that it's our time. It's our time to know him. Now, this could have been the end of, to me, that's the revelation of revelations. We get to be face-to-face. What happened in the garden has now ended. Or, I mean, what happened after the garden has now ended. We can be with Jesus again. We can be in full communion connection. Then Revelation chapter 2 and 3 happens. It's beautiful. It's, it's the message of Jesus to try and get humanity out of, a, uh, out of a survival mode and gives them and imparts the heart of what it is to overcome. He's like, you're not just going to go back to culture and be like, I guess I'm afflicted here. Coronavirus sucks. You know, politics sucks. Economy sucks. I guess that's my lot in life. You're going to look at that and say, no, 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 no. He doesn't just bring us out of poverty. He brings us into promise. And so he says, to those who overcome, they will be given this promise and this promise and this promise. So we have the hope that we don't have to live under this economy. We don't have to live under these politics this way. We don't have to live. We can actually live somehow supernaturally tied to heaven and the values of heaven. And it causes a difference, just like the children of Israel. And he was referring to this. When you study it out, he's referring to not just coming out of Egypt, but coming into the promised land. And it's that mentality that says, we're not just coming out of something. We are now occupying his dream. Now, that could have been the book of Revelation. I would have been happy. I would have been like, wow. You know, to me, I geek out on that stuff. Well, Revelation chapter 4 comes, and I've talked to several rabbis who've studied ancient Jewish texts, and there's a lot of heavenly encounters. Like, there's over 200 heavenly encounters that different Jewish people have had throughout history, mainly in biblical history and around those times and right after. And so I said, tell me what happens for these you know, Jewish leaders, when they heard of, was there ever a time someone else heard a voice from a higher place in heaven? What does that mean? And he said, actually, yes, it was quite common. All these, actually seven rabbis said it, but four are messianic. It was quite common in, in these Jewish studies for a voice to come in a higher place. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, there's a higher revelation. I was like, what's higher than Jesus and the church overcoming? What's higher? So I had to read through it again. And I, I hated at the time reading the book of Revelation because I'd seen too many Left Behind movies and Mark of the Beast movies. Like, I would watch Freddy Krueger over those 80s movies that have, like, I have a barcode on my head. It's okay. Like, you can get the mark, too, and you'll be okay. And then the girl gets her head cut off because she won't get the mark. And I was eight. Like, you should not watch those movies when you're eight years old. I met one of the producers of one of those movies in a meeting like this who said, I'm so sorry. I was one of the ones who made that movie. I mean, we, we have different theology now. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I still don't like you. But I love you in Christ, so it's okay. But you, go, you know, put aside everything that happens in the book of Revelation for just a minute until Revelation chapter 19 to the end. We get to Revelation chapter 19, and this is astounding because when John gets to this point, he's already in awe of what God is, but I just want to read this. 
he sees the 24 elders and the four living creatures and they fall face down and they worship God who's sitting on the throne and they say in agreement, amen, hallelujah. Then the voice comes from the throne saying, praise our God, all you loving servants. And then he looks over and he sees, let us rejoice and exalt in him and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, shining brightly and clear, has been given to her to wear and fine linen represents the righteous deeds of holy believers. Now realize this is the only time that the book of Revelations explains itself once. There's no other interpretation the whole time. That's why you're all so confused about it. Because it's not like John said, well, this means this, and this means this. This is the only time he said, they're clothed, the bride. He sees the bride. Now, this is what Jesus saw in the Garden of Gethsemane when he saw the joy set before him. He saw the counterpart of what he had created humanity to be with the Father being restored in its fullness. Not like, oh, a little redemption, like she's a little broken. Like, have you ever seen the people who are, you know, so messed up and they just want God to fix them, but they don't have any intention of really living? They're just in survival. They're like, oh, if you could just get me past this, I'll be okay. Well, that's okay unless you're trying to date them. You know, when I was dating, I was 37 when I got married, so I dated a few girls, not a lot. I wasn't a church hussy or anything, but I dated, you know, here and there, and I never dated a girl from my church because I was like the dad, so I couldn't date a girl from my local church that I pastored. So there's this one uh, girl that my friends set me up on, and everybody tried to set me up with somebody. All the Even people at Bethel would try and set me up with people. And... Um, and there's one girl down in Los Angeles that someone tried to set me up with. And I went out with her, and she had been divorced, I think, twice. And the first date was all about her pain of the divorce. And I was like, am I Pastor Sean, or am I potential lover husband Sean? I'm not sure how this works. The second date, we went, I don't know why I said yes again. She asked me out that time. I asked her out the first time. We go out, and she has a kid, and she's, like, talking about the pain of the ex-husband. And we were negotiating her calendar and how to man manage her dysfunctional relationship to her ex. And I looked at her, and I go, I think you need a spiritual father and a pastor, not a husband right now. I don't think that I'm coming into your life at the right place. You're an amazing person, but there's just some things that are going on. She's, she's like, no, no, God told me I would marry a pastor, and my whole life would change. I'm like, and that's why we're never getting married. Bye-bye. Bye. So when I meet Cherie, my wife, I fall head over heels for her in three weeks. Three weeks. She looks at me in three weeks and says, you know, Sean, and I'd had five women like try and date me because they wanted an upgrade to their life, which would, they would perceive my ministry to be. And they were marrying me for, for the identity of what I do, not who I am as a person. They didn't know me. And it was really hard. And so my picker was a little broken because I was picking pretty girls who liked me for the wrong reasons. And they were picking me for the wrong reasons. And they didn't really like me. They liked my ministry. But when I met Cherie, there was chemistry. There was fire. It's like Jesus does make someone for us. And, and when I met her three weeks into it, she goes, hey, you know, I, gotta, I have to have a really honest conversation with you. Um, you know how much I love the prophetic. I love ministry. I love God. I love, I, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to compromise that. But she goes, to have a public persona of prophecy and ministry and supernatural stuff, that's a big price to pay, and I'm not sure I'm willing to pay that price. It's kind of a liability to me. And so I'm not sure that we're right for each other because I've been counting that cost, and I'm not sure it's worth it for me yet. We were only three weeks in, the honest conversation, and I looked at her and I go, you're the sexiest woman I've alive. That's the sexiest thing anyone's ever told me in my entire life. I want to marry you, which she ran from when we didn't uh, date for two years, and then now we're happily married for eight, so it's great. But in that, here's, what I, here's why I had to tell that story. 
When I looked at Cherie, I saw identity, and you can't fake identity. She didn't need me to be her upgrade. She wanted me because of who I was. And when John saw the bride of Christ, he saw a woman who was fully ready to cooperate in her identity, that she had embraced from the Father who she was. And this represented the condition of Christians. Now realize, when he saw her, he saw himself. He saw the believers in his generation. He saw all the believers who would ever love Jesus. He saw them, and it was so holy what he was seeing. He expected Jesus to be that awesome, but he didn't expect her to be that awesome. Do you understand that? So when he saw her, he was so overwhelmed that it says, now this is the only time this happened. Now we would call this heresy nowadays. He falls down and worships the angel who shows him this. There's no light way to put this. You can't theologically change this. He goes, you're so holy that you made her. He's like, no, 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 I didn't make her. I didn't do this. And he said, and, and John said, I don't want to write about her. He had no problem writing about Jesus. He had no problem giving the entire world a word about what Jesus wanted to do in the church. But all of a sudden he sees her and it's so awesome to him because he can see why she was worth it. He's not seeing the kind of broken mess that people are. He's seeing fullness. He's seeing us at the end of the race with a trophy in our hand. We have won the prize that Christ paid a prize for. And he's so overwhelmed. And, the, and the, here's what the angel says, and this is what prophecy is. He says, don't worship me, John. You write down what you've seen because what Jesus' heart is hungry for, what it cries out for, is what his heart is prophesying over is her. What he did on the cross and what he cries out before the throne as our intercessor, it's her. And so when John saw from this point on, it was no longer like conspiracy prophecy, not that it ever was. It was no longer like, I wonder where the Illuminati is in the Jewish community right here. You know, I wonder where the demons are. Which principalities are over here? You know, what's going on over here? I bet you there's some big warfare over there. He didn't care what the enemy was doing. He didn't care what man wasn't because he had a precedence for how Jesus treated him his entire life, which he wasn't worthy. He probably had a little bit of imposter syndrome where he's like, I can't believe he chose me. He didn't choose like, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm just, just a guy. You know, like I'm not like, I, I'm not incredibly well studied. I'm just, he probably had a little bit of that his whole life until he saw what the father had made him to be in the first place. The writer of Hebrews also says, therefore we boldly approach the throne of grace full of confidence. And there's something about when you're willing to see the way God sees and perceive the way he perceives that you enter into a prophetic anointing where you start to see not what is not happening in you know, South Africa. There's so many people who can give you the predictions and the indicators of what will happen. As a matter of fact, you can discern and discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's only a conversation starter where you start to discern what's not. You start to discern maybe even Good things, talents and skills, redemptive possibilities. But only when God speaks or shares with you the counsel of his heart can you call forth what was in God's heart from the beginning of time like Jesus did. See, prophecy isn't just knowing some nice thoughts of God to have a less complicated life. Prophecy is walking in union with God and seeing what he perceives over your family, over yourself, over the people around you. If anybody tells you you can't prophesy over people you know, they're a liar or they don't understand. Because you actually have the most authority over the people you love the most. Because you're the most connected to his heart for them and you're the most connected to their heart in your life. And when John came back to the earth, he didn't die. He didn't go to stay in heaven. He came back. And when he came back, I wonder what his life was like. Because now everyone he saw, he saw them in the fullness of the Father's love and affection. He saw them in the fullness of the price Jesus paid a price for and treated them in an upgraded way, which is a culture 
of what the prophetic's like before it's a, a prophecy. Like some of you are like, I'd love to learn how to prophesy. Have you learned how to see people in fullness and not limit them for who they're not today? Have you looked at them and actually spoke to who they are in the heart of who they're supposed to be, who they're becoming, and enforced and encouraged that? Because that's what prophecy feels like. It feels like when you've had the best coach, when you've had really good parents who call out redemptive things inside of you, when you've had people who've helped navigate hard situations and you've actually won, not lost in those situations, that's what the Holy Spirit feels like in relationship to you. That's the communion that we belong to and it's automatically given to you. But sometimes he's stuck, as Pastor Bill says, the Holy Spirit can be stuck in unbelieving believers. And all we have to do is partner our faith. And the, the, the tricky thing is the more mature you get, the harder it is to partner because he does things so outside your process and your box. He always keeps you on your toes. You know, one of the things we were supposed to do with resource at one point, and it's a long story I won't go into, but just this one line is uh, we had uh, about 47 prophecies about a property we were supposed to own in Los Angeles. And, um, and I just had a hard time with that. I just, I believed it would magically come if a, uh, an angel fairy came and waved her wand and some rich person gave us money or something. But I didn't have any faith for the, the practical of it or the reality of it. I was like, one day that'll happen in 25 years. And they started to give us words like, it's gonna happen soon. Well, my wife began to, on a, she was on a mission to say, okay, I'm gonna really understand what God's saying to us here, pray into it and you know, work it through. And one day, it was a July of, um, it was four years ago, uh, I was walking down the street from my offices and I, or, or to my offices and I hear the internal audible voice of God. I don't hear that very often. Most of the time, it's just, I learn how to navigate my thoughts and his thoughts, impressions. But this time it's him. And he says, the house I have for you and the property I have for you is gonna be off the market on Tuesday. It's Thursday. He goes, do you want it? And it was such a father. That's how God is. Like, if I'm an Old Testament kind of prophet or one of the judgment prophets, I might say, because you did not partner your faith, the house is gone. And I give you this word on Tuesday. But because we have a loving father who's navigating inside of us and has grace for our weakness and even our sin, who paid a price even for our sin, even progressively as we grow more mature and as we allow unbelief in our heart. And he just asked me simply, would you partner your faith over this word so you can get the property I have for you? And I called my wife up and I said, hi, honey, um, I have something real important to talk to you about. Yeah, I haven't had any faith for this at all. And we have another prophetic word I never told you about. I forgot about a listing, and this could be the house, and God said our house is ready right now, and we'll miss it if we don't go by Tuesday. So, uh, hey, so the listing that was prophesied to us was an exact name of a listing with everything matching the prophecy. And my wife had already had it saved for 30 days in her listing, whatever, program in her app. And she's like, we almost missed this because of you, but I forgive you because we didn't. But next time. I will spank you. But I feel like that's such a picture of how the more we walk with God, the more we have to keep our heart connected. We have to become emotionally healthy inside. The more we have to recognize when we're in moments of weakness and be vulnerable with the fact that we don't always believe what he puts inside of us or we don't always expect what's inside of us to grow bigger than, you know, what we could manage. And he always grows bigger than what we could ever have capacity for. That's just who we are as Christians is that we have his capacity, not ours. And the prophetic is our navigation system, but it's also our interior developer to make Christ form within us. And when you understand this, that you start to get a vision for yourself at the end of the race with your trophy in your hand, you, when you look into the Father's eyes and what he's preparing in you for Jesus, you will be so radically undone. You will be so humbled 
by what God has carefully thought of and he calls you his masterpiece, that you'll be overwhelmed and there will be no pride. It won't be like, oh, I'm so awesome. It'll be like, you're so good, God. You're so good. Help me to become worthy of that for him. And when you have that in you, you're one of the safest people for the prophetic. And God could take you before kings or someone who's homeless on the streets. And you'll be safe because you understand it's not about you. You're not the hero of the story. Hashtag he's the hero. And God wants to entrust us with the spirit of prophecy. And he wants to entrust us with this culture of seeing people at the end of the race. And the only thing that's limiting him from trusting us is our own ability to say, I believe you speak to me in impressions. I remember the last time you convicted my son. I remember the last time you asked me to give money to somebody I didn't want to, want to give. I remember the last time you had me go out with friends I didn't want to go out with. I, you constantly get me to do things that are not in order with what I want. I recognize you, so now I'm going to be listening and do listening prayer instead of battle prayer or instead of, Father God, I pray, Father God, that you would, Father God, do this, Father God, where I'm using so many words because I'm no longer in a listening mindset or, or a listening practice. I'm in a, in a declarations only practice. And we have to change the style of how we have relationship if we want to hear him. And we have to bring the most precious things to the table and say, I'm willing to hear you and I want to hear you about these things. And I recognize my own ability to not be able to hear very well, God. But I know that you'll get louder if I don't hear you. So I just, I commit to listening. This is who God is. I love the God who could bring prophetic evangelism. And most of us, when we think of hearing from God, we think of the person on the street we're gonna prophesy to. But what about the cares and concerns he has in our own families, our own heart? So let's all stand. That's quite a noise. I just want you to put your hand on your head because most of the battle over this is in our head. God, I pray that you would deliver us from the way that we think and help us to have thoughts like Solomon, your process. Jesus, what you prophesied to the disciples and what you released in the upper room, we pray that you would release on us. Thank you that the first sign even, besides the vision of the tongue, was they prophesied in many languages. They start to carry your prophetic heart for nations. They start to carry what you wanted to do in nations and how you wanted to reveal yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would breathe into us your prophetic anointing right now. We pray that we would hear and even identify ways we've already heard. Lord, reverse engineer our relationship with you so we can see moments that you appeared and recognize those moments no longer as our wisdom or our when or it's just a good victory, or it's just providence, but it's actually a hand of you, God, who's carefully working inside of us. I pray that you would train us how to walk with you. We release the gift of prophecy and discernment, words of wisdom and words of knowledge. I thank you for 1 Corinthians 14, 1, where it says, go after love like your life depended on it, and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And we release prophecy right now in this room. Lord, if we've had wounds towards the prophetic, if someone's manipulated us, or we've been around a culture where someone brought not a dignity, but they brought shame to, to prophecy or words of knowledge or these kinds of things, they cheated or they manipulated, I pray that you would deliver us from that image of what prophecy is, God. Thank you that theologically that's not what prophecy is. Lord, reset us to have expectation. Thank you that you chose us, the weakest things of the world that you're not looking for the noble person who's awesome and had a vision when they were nine that they're gonna be a prophet. You're looking for the one who least expects it to raise up. And I pray that you would feel that wiring and that rewiring. I pray that there would be, even in your head, some of you would have signs that there's 
like fizz in your head going on, or that there's fuzz, or that there's thoughts, or that there's a disruption to your current way of thinking, or that you would change even our natural neurology if there's mental disorders, if there's learning disabilities. God, thank you that you healed me of two learning disabilities. Lord, heal this room. Lord, touch us. If there's been diagnoses of bipolar or ADHD or any of these kinds of things, Lord, rewire us tonight as a sign that we were wired to hear from you, that nothing can stand in the way of this operation. Holy Spirit, come. I just want to read the scripture real fast. Just stay there. He's here. He's, he's ministering. I was reading this in Psalm 50, 51 tonight. It's verse 12. Let my passion for life be restored tasting joy in every breakthrough you bring me. Hold me close to you with a willing spirit that obeys whatever you say. And I felt we were supposed to pray this as a, as a theme tonight, that we would say, you know, and we don't have to pray it out loud, but let my passion for life be restored. Just ask God to restore your passion for life. If you've had depression or if you've had discouragement or if you've had just a lack of passion, remember the time you were the most passionate about life and about God. That's what David was doing. He was stirring up that place. Restore that place of passion. Some of you are like at the opposite of that. You're like, God, I don't know why you didn't break through when I was in a place of passion. God purposely did it so it wouldn't be in your own strength. He chose a weak time in your life to bring his strength because therefore even you couldn't attribute it to, God, to yourself. You'd have to say, God did this. I didn't even have the capacity for it. Tasting joy in every breakthrough. God, the breakthroughs that are coming, I pray that you would identify them. Even as we're here at the conference, I pray that we'd have highlighted moments where even we'd see the relationship you just brought into our life or the friendship, the business partnership, the contract, the ministry breakthrough, the land, whatever it is, that we'd recognize those and we'd taste joy in them and not just look at the bigger picture of what has to happen before we would enter into joy. But I pray for each place that would give us joy. Lord, we repent for not having joy in the small breakthroughs. We repent for running past them and wanting our agenda with the big breakthroughs. Lord, we look at those and we celebrate with you every breakthrough, God. Hold me close to you with a willing spirit. God, give us a willing spirit that obeys whatever you say. Reintroduce into our spirit full willingness. That when we hear your voice, that we do something about it. We don't just go, oh, that's nice. Lord, help us to take action with a willing spirit to obey you. Holy Spirit, come. And it says, then I can show the other guilty ones how love and merci merciful, loving and merciful you are, and they'll find their way back home to you, knowing that you will forgive them. Lord, help us as we do this. Help it to be such a picture, such a picture that other people are going to find their way back home to you because we've returned our hearts to be able to thrive in our love. I'm not going to read the rest of that, but... I want to do something. Go ahead and sit down real fast. I'm going to have, if you are um, a mom or a dad of a child or children under 12 years old, and you've either had a diagnosis of cancer or you've just recently maybe beat cancer, you're in the process of it, I want you to come to the front. So if you're a mom or a dad and you have a children under 12 and you've had cancer, a diagnosis of cancer, or you recently beat it or you are still struggling with it, I want you to come to the front. And if I can have the Bethel student team to come up to the front as well, because I'm going to have you guys face out and pray for some of these guys. I just feel like the Lord was saying that he wants to heal the concern, heal cancer and heal the concern of cancer, and that we're supposed to do something together 
that, that there's something about the investment of families, that we're going to pray for families to be healed and restored, and that disease is part of it. Um, so we have one. Do we have anyone else who has cancer or, or you might uh, have beat cancer in the last six or eight months, or you might have it currently? We have some more coming down now. We're just going to stand with you guys. We're going to stand with you. This is not your story. It was never God's intention to give you cancer. It was, the, it was totally the fallen world. It was not God. And we just want to stand with you in belief that this isn't your story. And if you've already overcome it to some degree, we want to believe with God that it's a full overcoming. And um, I just feel like um, even for your children that God is saying, you know, I want, to, I want to give you a long life for your children. And he's going to bring the blessing of family. And I just feel like some of you are going to feel delivered from a spirit of cancer. Some of you are going to feel naturally um, something come off you. And then those of you who beat it, we're going to pray that God seals it so it doesn't come back. And go ahead and go step up to someone, you guys. And I just pray for you. Who, who has um, a Ben? Is there a Ben? Like, does one of you have a son named Ben? Does that, I kept, I was being drawn to you. And, um, and do you have a couple kids, like three, three kids? Is it like two boys and a girl? Is it like a, is there a William or a Liam or something like that? Your son, and there's, there's Ben, what's the third one? What is it? Say it one more time. Oh, there's three boys. Okay, this is awesome. Well, I just feel like um, you're our token of the, this group that God, um, I feel like you already have gone through some treatments. Is that true? And are you at the end of the treatments now? Are you past the treatments? I just feel like God's sealing you tonight, that he has been walking with you and this has been sealing you against generational capacity for cancer, and that I see you at stages of your boys' lives that are important stages that they'll need you, not only in their teens, but in their 20s and their 30s, that God is giving you a promise and a covenant with you that as you've given your heart to God in this and you've just said your will be done, he's saying his will and his story is for you to live long as a father and as a husband. And I feel like there's something that the, um, the toxic some of the treatments have done in your system and your metabolism that is healing tonight. It's going to be expedited healing and you're going to feel like fit. You're going to start to feel like your, your old self again. And there's going to be an expediting of being able to have the full energy every day for what it takes to be that dad, to be that husband. And I just feel like God's so proud of you. And you're going to see these three boys. There's such a call of leadership and a call of God in their lives. And they have the call to produce great fruit in their lifetime and God has made you the man for the job and he's not gonna let you get taken out so it can't be done. So I pray over this family, God, that there would be, and all these families, that there would be a seal on their, on their, their condition right now, Lord. Heal cancer, break cancer off their lives. We cast out a spirit of cancer if it's a spirit and we pray that there would be a complete health being delivered. Your original intention over their body, God. You guys can just keep praying for them. I felt like we we're supposed to pray for Zimbabwe. I just want all the people from Zimbabwe all over the room to stand up. And part of practicing the prophetic, how many of you know anything about Zimbabwe right now? You've, you've read something or whatever. So just, you're, you're the prayer team because you know something about Zimbabwe, even if it's negative. Maybe you've heard a negative report. We're going to look at those who are from Zimbabwe and we're going to ask the Father together. And I want you guys to practice. Look at who they are. They're all around the room. Look at who they are. And I want you to practice with a Zimbabwe crew that's here from different churches, different groups. There's one group here and there's some groups spread out. I want you to practice hearing what God wants to do over a nation. Because if you want to learn how to prophesy, not just, you know, nice things, but powerful things, you have to start to see what God originally intended, not only over a person, your family, like we're doing right here, but also over nations. And God has an intention over Zimbabwe to become a culture capital of all of Africa. 
He has an intention over Zimbabwe to bring resources that have been held by corruption that can make them one of the more wealthy nations of this whole continent. God has a desire to bring a reconciliation that is not in the hands of man right now. It's in the hands of God and angels. And there's a war that's going on, much like Daniel's war, there's a war that's going on that feels like delay after delay after delay. But this decade, something's changing. This decade, starting in 2020, something shifted. And I believe that Zimbabwe, and those of you who are here, God is saying, Zechariah 9, where he's saying, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope, for even now I will restore double to you. And before the nation even comes back into its inheritance, God is going to use Christians to have restoration of inheritance and legacy and finances and resources. And there's going to be a re-navigation of land stolen, projects destroyed. God is saying, I'm coming to fight with you, not just for you, for you, but fight with you. And I pray right now over those from Zimbabwe that there would be a restoration of greater life. That Psalm scripture earlier was for, for you. So I want those of you who are like, if you got excited about Zimbabwe, I want you to pray and say, why am I excited? I'm excited, Lord. Show, show me one of them to prophesy to or one of them to share with. And don't prophesy the negative things. Look for what God is doing, not what the enemy's doing, not what man's doing, but look for what God's doing. You have a couple days to sow in their lives. I believe that God wants to give many of them individual words all over the room. And so sow in their lives a word later on. I'm going to have you go ahead and um, sit down, you wonderful, beautiful people. Moss. Uh, when you were up here, I, I, we only met at dinner for 10 seconds, but when you were up here, I heard the Lord say, I'm going to restore um, what betrayal stole. And I saw you raised up some people, and you had uh, a hard hit of betrayal over someone you raised up in ministry. And there was a loss of purpose, but there's also a loss of key connections that were corrupted by this individual, almost like an Absalom spirit. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to restore what was betrayed and cut off this year. You're going to start to have, but he's saying, you open your heart because he's going to give you a fathering spirit, an apostolic spirit to raise some more up. And don't uh, let your flesh remember what happened with the old. But look, and you're already doing it with so many others, but look, because there's some special connections that have keys to government and have keys to like sports entertainment that are going to come up in your midst and be raised up in your midst. And the Lord is saying, don't let fear from what didn't happen block you from what will happen. And I feel like he's saying, no longer will there be a shadow of uh, uh, shame over these relationships, but there's going to be entrusting of beauty over the new relationships that are raised up. And God is saying, well done, spiritual father. This was not your fault. It was choices made by immaturity and sin, not because of something you've done. And he's honoring you tonight because of what he's about to bring you into. And he's saying, open your heart. And we will witness together as a collective church, people of influence being raised up under your ministry who have key connections that would have never even come into the kingdom if it wasn't for what you built. Does that make sense? Bless you. Well, we're going to do a lot more prophetic stuff tomorrow and uh, throughout the whole conference. We have moments of this. But I want you to just think about, uh, we're going to do one more thing while these guys are praying. I want you to just think about the main concern you came to the conference with. And I want you to hold it in your hand. Maybe it's over family or finances or maybe it's over something with your church or ministry or maybe it's over the nation Maybe it's over sickness. I want you to just hold the main concern to God. And I want you to just, just release it to him right now. Just say, God, this is yours. I came here and I ask you to speak to me about this. I ask for you, God, to do something. Move forward in this area, God. I, I, I know God's gonna hear this for each one of us. And he's gonna do something really special for you. 
That is a God orchestration that even if you could have got right in front of Bill Johnson for him to pray for you, it's going to be better than that. Even if you could have got a word for me, it's going to be better than that. He's going to orchestrate something that man cannot do for you. And you came here by divine appointment. He sent you here with concerns that he cares about. Some of you he's going to address them directly. Some of you he's going to speak to in other ways. But he has your best interest in his heart. And we're in a prophetic atmosphere where God's going to be doing so many things. And I'm so glad I get to be here for a couple days to sow into it. So thank you guys. Bless you. Have a great night. 